0: The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Out in front of Williams, slips through, here's a shot, it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! Cavers at home! Oh my goodness! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com.
1: Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Uh, Ben, my mother is in town today. State visit. State visit, uh, the second of this current administration. She's meeting (laughs) uh, my daughter for the first time, Lizette. The Lizette administration. The Lizette administration. And she told me that if I didn't mention her on the show, that she'd kill me. And there's proximity now, so she could make that happen. So, mom. Duly noted. Glad you're here. Yeah. It's very nice, though, welcoming someone from uh, Massachusetts to Los Angeles in March. They just sort of like can't believe this world exists.
2: We feel it's like cold here. Like people yeah. are freaking out that it's super cold here because it hits like, you know, 50 degrees. Uh-huh. And then people come here from other places and they're like, oh, this is, yeah, that this
1: is, is great. Six feet of snow. Uh, ben, you're going to D.C. next week. What's going on? Yeah, I just wanted to to
2: throw out a plug for the worldos in D.C., of which I know there are at least a few. Definitely. Um, David Lammy, friend of this podcast. Love uh, Shadow foreign secretary is going to be in D.C. uh, next week. And there's a public event at the Center for American Progress at 11 o'clock on Wednesday. So, one week from the day this podcast comes out, March 15th, David Lammy will be a cap at 11 o'clock. People should check it out and go to the Center for American Progress website. Is he doing
1: like a speech? Are you going to do yeah, a yeah, Q&A he's do- with him?
2: He's, yeah, he's doing like a, a talk and Fireside like a moderated chat. campfire or side chat.
1: Yeah. Uh, I listened to a great interview he did on uh, a competitor podcast that I will not name. The rest is politics as interviews. And he was getting feisty with uh, a former conservative MP and a former uh, Blair government sort of senior communications guru. It's the rest is politics podcast, yeah. but it's their like interview show it was very good though i emailed him i was like i'd like to hear you like kind of getting pissed off in these interviews yeah. maybe ben and i need to we're a little soft
2: off. yeah we're a little easier yeah it's a- i mean
1: he started talking and you're just like whatever you say yeah. sounds <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we got a great show today ben uh we are going to cover a lot of ground there has been this very scary rash of poisonings of young schoolgirls in iran we're going to talk about that News about Havana syndrome, uh, why it's troubling that the Department of Homeland Security is collecting intelligence. I got a pitch for you on DHS. Mm. Uh, How China and immigration are creating some big political problems for Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. A breakthrough potentially for South Korea and Japan. Ukraine news. Some very fun sounding thieves that I want to hang out with and tell you about. And then, Ben, you did our interview this week. What are we going to hear?
2: Well, we have uh, Wally Edeyamo, the uh, Deputy Treasury Secretary, uh, back in studio, uh, where he walks us through kind of the situation report, if you will, on uh, Russia sanctions. He's really the point person for those. So we talk about the efforts to deny Russia oil and gas revenue, pretty fascinating details about how Russia's trying to cheat that regime and what Treasury is trying to do to stop other countries from helping Russia <laughs> evade sanctions. Uh, we talk about life for the oligarchs um, and, and the efforts that were. Undertaking to stop Russia from getting the inputs needed to sustain its military industrial complex, so um, really good, clear, understandable, digestible uh, update from Wally. People should definitely check that
1: out. Yeah, and, and also keep an eye out uh, down the road for some exclusive Wally content on sanctions on the Pod Save the World YouTube page. So smash that subscribe button. Yeah, a little Wally World
2: here on Wally Pod Save the World. world. <laughs> yeah, Wally World though.
1: I love that. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Iran then, uh, because there's this very bizarre a scary story set of stories out of Iran, where more than 1,200 schoolgirls from 60 different schools have fallen ill since November and are suspected of being poisoned, CBS News reported that one Iranian lawmaker said the number could be up to 5,000 schoolgirls at 230 schools. Although nobody else has reported a number that high, regardless, a bunch of victims reported uh, like a weird smell, maybe of paint, maybe of something you know, something they didn't recognize, followed by these symptoms. Uh, after downplaying the attacks on Monday, Iran's supreme leader finally spoke out and said it was an unforgivable crime. That should be punished by death if it was deliberate so intense on tuesday iranian authorities announced they made some arrests uh previously the government has blamed sort of like nebulous enemies of iran which usually means the us or israel but i don't think they've specified Some Iranian politicians have suggested the perpetrator were uh, religious groups opposed to girls getting educated. Some activists uh, have said the poisonings were revenge for women joining the protests against Iran's morality police in support of Masa Amini. The poison attacks started in the city of Gom. They spread across the country. Uh, Some girls had to be hospitalized. Medical staff and teachers have accused the government of trying to intimidate them. Or intimidate victims out of talking to the media. It has all brought back some very painful memories of uh, a wave of acid attacks on women back in 2014, which were designed to uh, mutilate, terrorize women who uh, the assailants believed weren't dressed conservatively enough. The United States has called for a UN investigation of the incidents. Parents of some of the victims uh, have staged protests. Ben, I mean, I'm wondering if... if you know any of the sort of theories that have been floated sound more or less plausible than others to you and what you think like another wave of protests about the treatment of women could mean for the the current government
2: i mean y- we obviously don't know yeah. uh, which theory is right uh, rank speculation yes we are it's just horrifying um you know having daughters, too. I just like I can't imagine. I mean, anybody would think it's horrifying. I just I just envision sending my daughter to school. And then, you know, um, I look uh, clearly, I you know, to, to, to delve into the theories, uh, there are very existential questions in play in Iranian society right now. You know, the, the protest movement kind of got to the heart of what kind of country is Iran. And you know what is you know the the competing viewpoint of those who want e- equality for women and girls and there are like really hardline people there who believe the opposite thing and those people weren't just going to go away because this movement got traction and so whether or not the government you know is behind it. The government is witting of it. There's factions, because there there are in Iran, there are these kind of government-associated, kind of militia-type yeah, groups, the besieged, or, militia, the besieged yeah. just kind of goons. The morality police were kind of like this, too. They were yeah, yeah. kind of quasi-governmental. You know, th- there are varying degrees to which the government could be complicit or not. It, you know, this could be happening because the government wants it to be happening, or this could be some weird uh, hardline faction that there's a wink coming in their direction from somebody. The the basic point I would make, though, because it gets to what happens next, look, I think there are going to be real convulsions in Iranian society and politics for years to come, you know. And, you know, the the clerical establishment and the hardliners are not just going to, like, relinquish power. No, no. Um, And so, tragically, I think you're going to see a push and pull inside of Iran where, you know, the protests surge and there's reprisals that could include really horrific shit like this, you know. Yeah.
1: The other thing I saw was um, Iran's currency, the rial, has plunged 30% against the dollar since the beginning of the year, meaning it's increasingly worthless. So you are seeing, I don't know if it's an entirely a sanction squeeze, if it's some other broader economic challenge, but there's a lot of uh, cross-current and pressure against the government right now in terms of like deeply upsetting the population and leading people to want to do things that might be unheard of five years ago, 10 years ago, like take to the streets and protest.
2: Yeah, and and one of the challenges to the people that are like very hyped up on you know sanctioning iran and and you know they will tell you like the hardline voices in this country will tell you that the iranian regime is a you know apocalyptic uh, religious kind of cult right but wouldn't the logic of that be that those types of people don't just give up power because they've been sanctioned mm-hmm. you know this was always uh, you know the right. problem which is precisely because it is true that there is you know The absolutism of a religious theocracy is those people don't just give up power easily. I I think it means we're going to be in for some very rough times inside of Iran. Uh, Like if you're turning Iran into kind of a failed state economy, that doesn't mean that that the government is going to go away. It may mean that the worst elements in that system for a time move to the forefront. And that risks nuclear crisis, that risks you know, greater severity in terms of the punishment on the reigning people. Mm-hmm. It could get worse before it gets better,
1: yeah, absolutely. um, changing gears here to a, a big story in the u s. Uh, there was a new U.S. intelligence assessment that was released by the director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haines, her office, that concluded that it is, quote, very unlikely that Russia or any other foreign actor or foreign adversary is responsible for Havana syndrome. Havana syndrome is this catch-all term that describes the approximately 1,000 cases of health issues like nausea, headaches, ringing in the ears, uh, unexplained ailments that have uh, afflicted U.S. government personnel working abroad and sometimes their families. The symptoms were first reported by staffers working at the U.S. embassy in Cuba back in 2016. There's been a lot of speculation that Havana syndrome was caused by some sort of Russian weapon, a directed energy weapon was one theory, maybe some sort of surveillance activity that created concussion-like symptoms by accident. But these intelligence agencies in the U.S. couldn't find any evidence or pattern to prove these theories. Now, what makes this very delicate and complicated is that the government isn't doubting that the symptoms and the harm felt by a lot of people uh, was real. They just don't believe that it was an attack by a foreign uh, government or adversary. In most cases, they believe these were pre existing conditions or environmental causes. There are some cases that are just sort of truly unexplained. Some of the victims and advocacy groups for the victims expressed frustration with the report as they are still living with these unexplained and in some cases debilitating health problems. Some of them pointed out that the number of new Havana syndrome cases have dropped precipitously since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the suggestion being that Russia got distracted or stretched too thin by the war to keep doing this stuff, which is sort of like interesting circumstantial evidence. But Ben, there's sort of like two kinds of damage here. The first is this the, the pain and suffering the victims felt, right? Regardless of how it happened, like that is a huge problem. But the second tranche is serious diplomatic damage that's happened over the past six years, right? The, the Trump administration used Havana yeah. syndrome as a pretext to remove employees from the U.S. embassy in Cuba, expel Cuban diplomats, make it harder for Americans to travel to Cuba. They basically rolled back all the progress that the Obama administration had made that you helped negotiate yeah, yeah. in response to medical ailments that, by the way, no one ever accused the Cuban government of being behind, right? It just happened in on their territory, supposedly. And then you also had, like, top U.S. officials, both in the Trump and Biden administration, threatening Russia over this, which uh, isn't great for, you know, U.S. credibility in, in these matters. So really just, like, a very unfortunate place to land.
2: Yeah. One of the weirder stories in recent years, and, and just to take it in pieces, I mean, first of all, like I know people uh, and have had people that I know have reached out to me who are in this group of affected people. Mm-hmm. Like people got like people are suffering from from health uh, issues. And by the way, the people who reach out to me are not just people who've served in Cuba, it's other places. What's so weird about this story, though, is that and I do want to focus in on the Trump piece of it. There was never a time, like you said, where U.S. intelligence agency or the FBI, right, which is a law enforcement and intelligence agency, came out and said, hey, we think the Cuban government did this, right? right? Um, or that they came out and said, we think the Russian government did this. From the very beginning, there was something strange about how skeptical the intelligence community was that that this was a foreign attack. And when you look at the reports that came out recently, pretty categorical, like we just The U.S. intelligence community does not believe that a foreign government did this. It was like five
1: agencies came together to work on this. I think the CIA probably led it. And they came away thinking it was highly unlikely it was a foreign adversary, highly unlikely that such a type of weapon, like a directed energy weapon, exists. Yeah. I mean, they really tried hard. And and that's the thing.
2: You remember last week, we talked about confidence, and the language was about as, you know, this was not hedged. This was like highly unlikely. Like, we just don't think this happened. Right, right. And that's pretty dramatic. Now, it makes you wonder, like, how did this thing come out of the gate? And if you go back to that time, because I was recently out of government and you started to hear about this, the Trump people totally used this to justify shuttering our embassy in Cuba, rolling back the opening to Cuba more dramatically. And you talk about like they didn't blame. Well, Marco Rubio who, by the way, is on the intel was chair of the the Senate right. Intelligence Committee, w- was not shy about blaming the Cuban. No, police. not at all. Like I, I really want to know, like part of the story that we just don't know here is what did the Trump people know at that time <laughs> because they at least allowed for this cloud to settle over the sure. Cuban government, and it wasn't until these you know quote unquote attacks or events started to happen in other places that you know the the focus shifted. So first point is. This totally discredits the idea that like we needed to roll back the opening to Cuba because of Havana Syndrome, which you know why is he even called that at this point, and so yeah, the the justifications for the maintenance of a hardline policy on Cuba continue to fall by the wayside. We've I don't need to blabber on this podcast, but like there is now every reason to 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 rollback the trump rollback of the obama policy right um the, the, for, for border reasons humanitarian reasons foreign policy reasons and common, now, sense. common sense reasons now this reason and because yeah. you might want to travel to cuba if you're listening to this but then there's a bigger issue here which is that th- this kind of thing has like an impact on the credibility of the united states like we just move on to something else but people in latin america or people in europe are kind of like hey what what was this the Vanna syndrome thing we heard about for years. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lack of an explanation about what the hell happened here. It's still kind of missing. And I'm sympathetic to the Biden people to some extent because they they weren't around for most of this when this kind of got momentum. But like, was this like, people have been Reacting to like some encryption technology, or or maybe people just there there was a a psychosis that came with like, hey, these symptoms could be Havana syndrome. um, That understandably, if people started to have like intense headaches and hearing things, they're like, oh my god, I must have been targeted with Havana syndrome.
1: Yeah, I mean the FBI sort of floated this sort of like group psychosis explanation. I think the intelligence agencies that assessed it sort of shot that down. That said, I think, you know, when the Trump administration ended and the Biden administration started, I think they they welcomed people to come forward with cases. And a lot of people probably heard about Havana syndrome, maybe had some health uh, problems that they couldn't explain and reported those. So that becomes part of that like 1000 incidents count. Right. That seems to inflate the, the volume and number. But the number of like truly acute unexplained cases is far, far lower, like maybe in the dozens.
2: Yeah, and I'll, one other thing, I actually, I don't think I've talked about this. Um, I was in, the last time I was in Cuba, you know, I don't know when it was. It's a while ago, uh, maybe early 2018. I saw some people I knew in the Cuban government um, and they were like, you know, adamant. Like, we have no idea what the fuck this thing is. And I'm not suggesting these are all like, you know, like Democrats. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're not there in the Cuban Perfect government. People, yeah. But the point is, we have like a history of just, you know, how would you feel <laughs> if you were Cuba? Like, like you've been, you've had the label "Havana Syndrome" affixed to you. Uh, I'm, obviously, the Cuban government does harass our diplomats at times. Like, there's very true stories of shit that they've done. So, I'm not letting them off the hook. But there's a general point about U.S. credibility when these things happen. Like, I don't know. This is a weird episode, um, and people are going to continue to pull this thread. And the more information that can be put out about. What happened? And I, the decision tree in the Trump administration about why to elevate this. Remember, Rex Tillerson was talking about it. Like when we didn't know what it was, was that I mean, in a normal administration, it'd be a pretty big scandal if basically in order to service a, a political goal, which is to get tough on Cuba for a Florida audience, you just ginned up something that we didn't have supporting information for like. I don't know. That seems like a big story, but in the Trump context, it's you know, it's a medium story. One of a million. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Speaking of weird intelligence collection or problematic intelligence collection, uh, Ben Politico reported that for years now, the Department of Homeland Security has had a secret domestic intelligence program that allowed DHS officers to seek voluntary interviews with nearly anyone in the United States, including people in immigration detention or prison, without first speaking to their lawyers. It's called the overt human intelligence collection program. Uh, I hate the names of these things. The program's activities are part of the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis. they called INA. Uh, The program was supposed to gather information on threats like uh, drug trafficking, organized crime. But the whole thing is a mess. So Politico did a great report on this. They got some internal documents that show that department staff have raised concerns about the legality and the utility of these activities. Here are two examples. There's one quote from an employee that says, many taskings seem to be law enforcement matters and not for an intelligence organization. Even if we are technically allowed to do this, should we? What was the intent of Congress when they created us? Another said, showing where we provide value is very challenging. That's pretty damning. So long, complicated, interesting story. There are concerns about the DHS intelligence mandates, civil liberties issues, if you have employees like interviewing people without a lawyer. Everything about this is a mess, which, Ben, brings me to my hot take of the day for you, which I want to run by you, which is I think the Department of Homeland Security should be dismantled.
2: Should not exist. Should not exist.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a legacy of post-9-11 hysteria. Yeah. The Bush administration resisted it at, at first, but then Joe Lieberman and a bunch of goobers in Congress forced their hand. The Department of Homeland Security jams 22 agencies and hundreds of thousands of employees together in ways that make no sense. How are FEMA and the Secret Service connected? Why are ICE and the Coast Guard under the same roof? The politics of this thing I'm calling for right now are are terrible, right? You don't want to be seen as anti-homeland security, but it has not made us safer. It's redundant. It's inefficient. uh, It's legally and ethically fraught. So let's dismantle it leave the law enforcement intelligence work to the law enforcement guys and the intel officers and then leave uh take immigration back to the state department make fema a standalone thing like you'll save a ton of money i think you'll save a couple billion a year this like the whole agency makes no sense
2: i love this take and this is by the way no you know shot at the people that work at the department of homeland security or even lead it it's just cuz it's not their fault this Should not exist. And like like this is created after 9-11 in a kind of hysteria of like we must do something, you know, and it was basically created to be this like mega terrorism protection office, you know, uh, like they became the sprawling department. But it had the effect of infusing that post 9-11 mindset into all these other functions of government, right? right, Like so, integration. Exactly, yeah. right? So, you know, for those of us old enough, remember, it started with like color-coded threat alerts, which yeah. seemed to conveniently coincide with George Bush's political calendar. Mm-hmm. Like Elections, his approval yeah. rating would go down and the terrorism threat would go yeah. up, right? Yeah. But then the other thing is, if you take things like immigration enforcement, just to take that one example, that used to be in DOJ, right? Well, if you take that and you plop it into a place called the Department of Homeland Security, Of course, immigration becomes much more securitized, right? Right. And everything from like this thing, like the intelligence gathering, like, you know, a bunch of DHS spies, like that's not something that should exist. But then like uh, ICE becomes like a security agent in, in, in more than it is like a legal question. Right. And so it's securitized all these functions. Look at TSA. Like we are still taking off our fucking shoes when we get on a plane, for no reason, and I must have been fucking red flagged by some Trump guy because I can't <laughs> get pre-check. Like, really? Uh, oh, oh! I got dropped. I pre-check status, <laughs> it went away during the Trump years, even though it wasn't expiring yet. Interesting. And then I did all the things, paid the money. Like, if, if, if anybody's listening who can help me with you get this- shadow banned. I just can't. I'm shadow banned from PreCheck. So every time I'm taking my shoes off, I'm like, this is insane. But this is a symptom of having a department that securitizes all these different aspects of American life. It should absolutely not exist.
1: The, the big pre-9-11 failure was- the failure of intelligence sharing, mostly between the FBI and the CIA. Guess what? Neither of those agencies yeah, are in DHS. Not the
2: Coast Guard <laughs> and the Secret Service. And I mean, it go, it go on that website
1: and just look at it's all the wild. functions of government that are underneath the Department of Homeland Security. Two hundred forty thousand employees and a thirty-eight billion dollar budget in twenty fifteen.
2: And and by the way, what's interesting too is that like now all the you know focus on Ali Marcus, secretaries on the border. Like Tom Ridge, the first guy, you literally thought he was just like a terrorism guy. Yeah. So like the expectations placed on the person who runs this department are constantly shifting. Completely like, changed. Yeah, yeah.
1: DHS yeah. has morphed into an immigration agency. It's and th- a, yeah. a great anecdote in this 2005 Washington Post article about the formation and how ad hoc and half-assed it was. So the agency that supplies prosecutors in immigration court cases, that was moved to DHS. But the agency that supplies immigration court judges stayed at the Department of Justice. The reason was the person working on this for Tom Ridge was some Harvard guy who didn't realize that immigration courts were a big deal and so just like, didn't look to move them. The other amazing anecdote about this is the White House apparently in 2005 wanted a research lab for the Department of Homeland Security. So they phoned a friend over the Department of Energy, figured out which one they should take. And then, according to the Post, did not realize that he had just decided to give the new department a thermonuclear weapons simulator. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy.
2: I mean, even like the whole – I even remember at the time thinking that the whole – Homeland was like a weird word. It felt yeah. like a word that you know was like had a German root or something. Yeah. You know, like like um, and, and 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 I just Joe Lieberman, I think, was the guy. Like he was, was the re- champion. Think, like this is like everything about this. You know, is just not worked out. No, no,
1: you know? no good. Uh Okay, glad we got that off our chest. But and,
2: and to get to the original story, like. Like intel gathering without a lawyer in this country. Bad like, news. Let's just not do
1: that. Let's not do that ever again. Two stories out of Canada. So the first has to do with China, Ben. Uh, on Monday, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said he's going to appoint a special investigator to look into allegations of election interference by the Chinese government in Canada's 2021 federal election campaign. First of all, congrats to our friends in Canada for getting your own Mueller probe. Yeah. The the yeah. uh, Rubound Atitative PP. I think that's French for the pee, the P tape. Um, here's what <laughs> here's what happened. It's my French. The Globe and Mail reported on classified intelligence documents that detailed how the Chinese government interfered in Canadian elections to help Trudeau's Liberal Party and defeat conservatives who were viewed as critical of China. Chinese officials did this through disinformation campaigns that targeted Chinese immigrants in Canada by giving cash donations to specific political campaigns and by having businesses hire Chinese students and make them volunteer full-time on specific political campaigns. The report quotes a Chinese consular official in Canada saying in July of 2021 that quote, uh, Beijing likes it when the parties in parliament are fighting with each other, whereas if there is a majority, the party in power can easily implement policies that do not favor the PRC. In other words, China wanted Trudeau's liberal party to be in power, but not with a clean majority, so they could not get anything done. Uh, which is
2: what. The result was. This is result. Yeah, 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 yeah. the result.
1: The general, uh, Chinese consul general in Vancouver reportedly bragged about beating two conservatives. So, Ben, like much like 2016 in Russia, we don't know exactly how much these efforts influenced the election results, if at all. The The former leader of the conservative party says it costs him eight or nine seats, but who knows? He's self-interested. The questions for the Canadian government are, one, if you spotted this activity, why was no one warned? And two, Trudeau has previously said there was no meddling. Why'd you say that? But I do think that you and I, we can get into that but we should also pause to just consider what an own goal this is by china because their relationship with canada has been terrible since 2018 when the the canadians arrested some huawei officials right uh sent of the US on our on our demand yeah, extradited yeah, yeah, to the US yeah, yeah. for prosecution so the chinese arrested some canadian business people um, the two
2: michaels actually the including yeah
1: right right yeah things have gone south ever since but now there's this like interference story which is going to make the liberal party probably twice as hard on China as they might otherwise have been I mean I can't see how this ends well for the Chinese government
2: yeah there's there's a few different angles I mean the first thing is that like the Chinese clearly do this and and they there have been a lot of stories about them, uh, like really getting into like Australian politics, yes. and so they, they must. They, there's like a certain size country <laughs> that the Chinese like to throw yeah, their weight around. in. It's and, a Goldilocks thing, you know, going on yeah. It's here, kind right? of these like you know, and no, no. I mean, Canada's physically large, but population-wise, these medium-sized democracies, the Chinese like it's almost like they're test driving like mm-hmm. their influence campaigns, and that's bears watching. The reality of this thing is at this point, I think China, Russia are like quote unquote meddling, probably in every country's politics. I mean, if if a social media... I don't want to... Tr- I'm not diminishing this, and I'll get to that in a second, but, like, this is a fact of life. And and that calls for vigilance and calling it out and being transparent about it and all the rest of it. Um, now, in Canada, it's a little... It's What's interesting here, too, is that the way they were making use of the kind of diaspora, mm-hmm. that's some dangerous shit yeah. in there, right? Because...
1: Paying uh, people, like, yeah.
2: what I worry about is if it, you, you want to talk about something that have negative knock-on effects... Imagine if that happened here. There's already a challenge with Chinese Americans and Asian Americans kind of being targeted by people who think they're taking on like the CCP, right? Right. I worry a lot about if there's a sense that anybody who's like Chinese is a spy. Yeah, the
1: anti-Asian. That's fate. like
2: very bad stuff. So like one of the reasons to be transparent, but it's also to kind of try to not allow for this kind of mass McCarthyist suspicions mm-hmm. takeover. So the Canadian government should should. should get in front of this, put information out. I have been kind of watching like the kind of MAGA flavor of the Canadian right, like just vicious dunks on Trudeau. So excited. Look, I mean, I've been a Trudeau defender Uh, on this stuff. Obviously, he needs to like if, if if he said that there was no meddling and there was, he has to explain himself. I will say there is a difference between Donald Trump standing up and asking Russia oh, for sure. to hack on his opponent and Don Jr. taking meetings with Paul Manafort and like Russian agents like this is not apples to apples with uh, the Russian meddling in this election, which is what I see the Canadian right kind of trying to do up there. Um, but this is more like this is part of the landscape for all democracies going forward. We're not going to prevent writ large any russian and chinese influence campaigns in our politics we have to create anybody's and and this is a part of life in the 21st century
1: now. yeah but before we move to uh, sort of canada story number two the chinese uh party congress is happening right now and i saw before we came in that chinese president xi jinping said quote the western countries led by the united states have implemented all-around containment and suppression on our country bringing unprecedented severe challenges uh, to our development. It was reported by state media, apparently based off of something she said in a private meeting. But like a lot of China watchers are saying, this is far and away the most direct criticism of the US by Xi. And then the Chinese foreign minister went even further saying, if the US does not hit the brake, but continues to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing and there will surely be conflicts and confrontation who will bear the catastrophic consequences. So very... Alarming.
2: I'm really glad this is worth pausing for a second here because I remember with Russia, right? Like Putin, Putin's rhetoric was getting hotter and hotter and hotter through the Obama years, right? And he said that he believed that the U.S. overthrew Yanukovych in mm-hmm. Ukraine, right? And therefore, it was kind of like, you came in our politics, all right, we're coming in your politics in 2016. The point, I make that point because like we can say that's crazy and we didn't do that and that's true. We didn't sponsor a coup in Ukraine, but Putin clearly believed that. If you listen to the Chinese, they believe what Xi Jinping said. Yeah. And so I make that point of they're going to start meddling more in our politics. Like, they, I, I just I don't know why we would think that the Chinese it, like they, they will tell you what they think. And these Xi Jinping comments speak to a mindset where they think that we are now kind of almost at, at war with them in a way. And and so I would expect more you know meddling from China in our politics. Biden's taken some drive by Xi, <laughs> if you noticed this recently. He was like. Like at one point, he was like, Who would want to be this guy? Like, mm. nobody wants to be Xi Jinping. I'm a little, I would take that down a lot. I, I don't yeah. think attacking him personally, I think that's more likely to invite like an escalation that's not worth it. You well, know?
1: I mean, I think this sort of the the Xi's point that the US is trying to contain China is not wrong. We anyway.
2: say it all the time.
1: Just look at the rhetoric coming out. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's one to watch. Um, but the other big, story and political challenge for trudeau bend is is immigration uh the new york times reported that in 2022 nearly 40,000 migrants uh, unlawfully crossed the border from the united states to canada mostly into quebec that was double the 2019 number and apparently so far in 2023 the numbers are bigger than 2022 so it's getting worse this has led you know just like you were saying earlier sort of the maga right it's led to a surge in anti-immigrant sentiment in canada and calls for the government to seal the border especially in quebec Biden is supposed to visit Canada later this month. Trudeau says he's going to raise uh, the issue on the visit and wants to renegotiate a treaty from like the early 2000s to try to address the problem in a holistic way. It also comes as there are reports this week that the Biden administration is considering detaining families that unlawfully cross the border. This isn't family separation like the Trump administration, but it is still a policy that Biden ended when he took office uh, because he felt it was inhumane. Families instead are released into the U.S. temporarily with sort of like ankle bracelets or ways to track them. Uh, The discussions are all happening in anticipation of a surge of migration after the expiration of Title 42 authority in May, which is that Trump era rule that allowed immigration officials to expel migrants in the name of public health reasons around the pandemic family detention has happened in previous administrations i think under bush obama and trump uh there have been reports over the years of appalling conditions at these detention facilities because they're just not designed to hold people like this but it's also worth pointing out that trump wanted to hold families indefinitely as a deterrent or hold kids and families as long as possible but i think that got struck down by the courts. so uh, the immigration crisis in the U.S. now is getting so bad that it is seemingly upending or sort of MAGA-ifying politics in Canada.
2: Yeah. And I don't know why that wouldn't get worse. Right. Because if people the more people feel like they they can't stay here without you know being detained or deported they'd make a run to that border.
1: Um, and I think you can get, you know, you can cross, you can unlawfully cross, get arrested, get released, and they get health care, other benefits, kids can enroll in school. So it's like a very generous, welcoming like country. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it, it's like a friendlier place in America.
2: You know, it's like, and it's like a lot of migrants in Europe used to try to get up to, you know, some of the Northern European countries that, oh, that then ultimately became hard-ass, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, to me, it just speaks to the need, look... W- w- If we don't try to have a real conversation in this country about like legal immigration policies and legalization of certain people who are here combined with enforcement, like this is the kind of whack-a-mole that we're going to be playing in terms of the system is broken and it's not going to be fixed by detaining families. It's at some point you're going to have to fix it, but that's going to require Congress. There's just not a better answer.
1: For someone thinking, why would you ever detain a family? Here's a scenario where someone could make that argument. If, If... Everyone suddenly knows that if you come to the border as a family, you get released into the US, but if you come as an individual, you get expelled. That gives you an incentive, right, to come as a family. I'm not defending it, I'm just explaining why. I reached out to the White House to sort of get their. Position on this leak in the New York Times, uh, and they said there's no intention of reinstituting a detention system that keeps families in long-term custody for lengthy periods of time. DHS is preparing to process migrants under Title Eight expedited removal after Title Forty Two ends. No decision has been made as to whether families in those proceedings will be held temporarily for processing consistent with all legal and healthcare requirements. So what it sounds like, you know, they're setting up is. You know, you might have families being held for a yeah. short period it's like of time. A for, yeah,
2: classic non-denial denial. You yeah, issue. I mean, but what you could tell in that story, though, is that, like, to be fair to the White House, like, I'm not trying to be glib about it, but just basically, they're not denying that this conversation is going on there, but they are saying it's not long term, right? Um, but the the point being that clearly, people in those meetings decided to leak this to the New York Times or, or the Journal, I guess, whoever had it first. And the Times to, to try to you know, gin up this conversation. Um, but like you, like we've talked about, uh, in, in, if you are denying the government, like the resources and the legal frameworks and the the reforms necessary to manage what are going to continue to be increasing immigration flows, particularly with climate change, like there's they're just, just not a good answer to any of this stuff.
1: Yeah, and you've probably got a bunch of uh, people from DHS in these interagency meetings, in the situation with the White House, who want a more hawkish, hardline position and thus would leak stuff like this. Yeah. by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation.
0: Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began, or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. And I, listen, I wish I would pick book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah. There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp crookedworld Okay, Ben, so big news uh, out of South Korea, uh, where South Korea said they will compensate individuals who were forced to work for Japanese companies between 1910 and 1945, when Korea was ruled by Imperial Japan. How to compensate these victims of forced labor has been a huge source of tension between South Korea and Japan for decades in finding a resolution is seen as critical to increasing security cooperation between the U.S., Japan, uh, and South Korea, and just, you know, calming things down a little bit generally. Biden welcomed the move uh, very quickly in a statement. In 2018, South Korea's Supreme Court had ordered two Japanese companies to directly compensate workers. Japan refused, which increased tensions further. Between the two, and things have sort of gotten worse at times since. Japan's official position is that this forced labor dispute was settled back in the 1960s, when Japan and South Korea signed a treaty, and Japan paid like 500 million in like grants and loans. Uh, in restitution. The announcement this week seems like a creative way by South Korea to get victims some compensation, but maybe get around the fact that Japanese companies refuse to participate in, in that process. Perhaps not coincidentally, President Biden is planning to host uh, the South Korean president for a state visit on April 26th, the second of his presidency. You know who the first was? Macron. Macron. The French. So, you know, this deal could fall apart, especially since victims uh advocacy groups want a lot more they want an apology from the japanese government but it does seem like if nothing else a pretty big risky concession by uh president Yoon and the south korean government and maybe it speaks to growing concern from the u.s from japan and south korea about the need to deal with north korea and and china and just coordinate more
2: well like we went through a, like the a version of the exact same thing in the later obama years which is that the issue of comfort women, which is like a, you know, a, applies to basically, the Japanese used South Korean women essentially as slaves and at times sex slaves um, uh, during their uh, their their colonization occupation uh, yeah. uh, uh, of of Korea. This issue came up of of acknowledgement and compensation, um, and it really like it was the, the leading issue in the relationship uh, between Japan and South Korea and the U.S. and Japan and South Korea. And there had to be kind of U.S. mediation of like a similar kind of measure that where the Japanese are acknowledging it, providing some compensation, but not nearly as much as what the Korean public wants. Right. And they kind of partially implemented. I, I only make this point that the history between South Korea and Japan is so intense. The In, in South Korea, the grievances have become more acute in recent years, in part because you have the nationalism that comes with the country kind of coming into its own, mm-hmm. but also because the, the generation of people that experience this have been dying off. And so there has been this idea that like, you know, before the, you know, that generation is gone, we want to see, you know, amends made, reparations yeah. paid. Understandable. And, and and everybody, I think, in South Korea understands it's not going to be like fabulous wealth. It's more just a symbol of of an acknowledgement with an, an accountability cost to it. Whereas in Japan, the politics obviously are, why are we doing this now? Like, what mm-hmm. you know, it's what you might imagine. On the surface, though, like, Japan and South Korea share, should share a lot of interests. They're democracies, they're allied with the United States, they're worried about North Korea, they're worried about Chinese influence, they're worried about Taiwan's Strait contingencies. And so the U.S. role is, can we just manage these issues so they don't derail the relationship? And can you guys have a dialogue about the past that, that allows you to not have, like, present and future cooperation totally screwed up? and And, look, this will be a muddle. I mean, I think Japan will never do as much as what Korea wants, but you know Korea like needs something and And here we are,
1: you know, yeah, hopefully it's the beginning of a process that leads some more sort of durable framework
2: and and just like I, I, hopefully at some point the discussion around these issues leads to the building of actual trust, because mm-hmm. it shouldn't just be the u s. being like, hey, you're our two allies. You better get along. Like right. it, it, you want a more genuine reconciliation to take place, and yes. and and that should be on the Japanese. Like the Japanese should try to go that extra mile to indicate that they are hearing and listening and understanding why this matters so much to the Koreans, even if they're not going to be able to kind of pay the the, the 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 highest amount of reparations that are being demanded.
1: Yeah. Uh, a couple more things before we get to Ben's interview. So. First, we just talk about Ukraine. Um, The the big ongoing battle is this battle for the city of Bakhmut. Uh, the BBC reported that Western officials believe that up to thirty thousand Russian troops have been killed or wounded in that battle in the last six months. In that one battle, Ukraine is also undoubtedly taking horrific casualties. But military experts believe that the Ukrainian military hasn't retreated yet from Bakhmut, which is not some incredibly important strategic city, because they believe that Russia's continued expenditure of manpower and ammunition will ultimately benefit the Ukrainian side. So grim, grim stuff. The fighting. On the Russian side, as we've talked about, has been led by the Wagner mercenary group. Its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has been publicly complaining that his fighters are running out of ammunition. That has not stopped him from sending wave after wave of, you know, essentially unarmed, you know, men who don't have training or bulletproof vests sort of like at the front. But then on the diplomatic front, we have talked about how um, claims that sort of the world is united against Russia have been way overstated uh, and it's really sort of the US and Europe on one side and then a bunch of other countries sort of on the fence or kind of like skeptical of US sanctions on the other side but judging by this clip of uh, Russian foreign minister Sergey Lavrov at a conference in India it doesn't mean that other countries or other people are necessarily buying Russia's spin here's a clip.
3: The war uh, which uh we are trying to stop, and which was launched against us using the (laughs) Ukrainian people. uh, Of course, it influenced, influenced, influenced uh, the uh, policy of Russia.
4: So
1: it's Lavrov saying uh, the war was launched against Russia and an audience of, I guess, Indian businessmen laughing in his face. Do you think that was the reaction he was hoping for here? No, no.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's a good point, which is that, like, the global south like they they're not signed up to like our like kind of crusading view of this war sanction but that doesn't mean that they're buying the russian right. spin you know either right. like they're they're just kind of like just leave us alone like, come like, on guys we don't want to hear your bullshit lavrov and but you know what we also don't want to like participate in your sanctions, Americans, you know, and, and I'm not saying there's an equivalence between those things, but that is the reality. And it's good to see Lavrov humiliated, you know, on occasion. It
1: really is. He's such a pompous asshole.
2: Yeah. And he just, uh, that man can lie, you know, with like an absolute poker face. I mean, just, you could put anything in front of him. You could put, it, actually like you could do one of your chatbot exercises. Mm-hmm. I would believe anything that Lavrov says in a, in a, in a, in a bot, because like guy would say anything.
1: Oh, Ben, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up my um artificial intelligence deepfake voice hobby because there was an <laughs> interesting article in the Intercept about how uh, this reporter found a federal contact document that showed the US Special Forces Operations Command looking to use deepfakes for global disinformation campaigns. So this is probably happening as we speak.
2: Yeah, and we just talked about China meddling in elections. Like, do you think we're not gonna be hearing a little deep fake action uh, on behalf of Beijing. Yeah, the CIA is probably having a lot
1: of fun with this, too. Yeah. Uh, before we move on to two lighter things, wh- what the hell is happening in Georgia, the country, right now? So, yeah, just
2: like they're, today, like, they're the huge protests. Basically, you have the kind of parliamentary majority there trying to ram through this law that is very Russian. <laughs> like, it's basically, like, designating... NGOs and civil societies like foreign agents. Mm-hmm. So this is like an old Putin playbook, Orban playbook. But it's kind of seen as a proxy for because the EU that you know Georgia wants the Georgian liberals want to draw closer to doesn't like laws like this. So the people in the streets, you see European flags, you see people who are trying to stand up to what they see as a kind of Russian/slash autocratic direction being taken by this party Georgian dream. The president of Georgia is actually not on board with mm-hmm. this law. So it's split. I I, th- I highlight it only because the, Georgia is a country that is right on the fault line. Right, obviously, between yeah. in Russian influence and Western influence, and and the people there, I think, genuinely, the majority of them would like to be drawn closer to Europe, like the majority in Ukraine was. You've got Russia occupying two chunks of Georgia. You know, I think it was inevitable that these debates and the war in Ukraine is gonna to continue to reverberate in Georgia, we should just keep an eye on
1: it. Mm, you know? Definitely, definitely. in a place that sort of uh, felt the sting of Russian tanks rolling into their yeah. territory. And is
2: right on that fault line yeah. between Russian influence and Western influence. Yeah,
1: two sillier things. So, slot this one, this article under sort of relationship goals. So there's a, a, a woman who is being described in all these stories only as a former Mexican beauty queen and her partner stole 45 bottles of wine valued at over $1.7 million and were finally captured after a nine-month manhunt. None of this reporting says their full names. For some reason, they just call them uh, Tatiana and Estanislo, uh, which is like, makes it cooler, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, it's cooler. But so, okay, apparently these two, they check into like a Michelin-starred fancy hotel. They ate a 14-course meal asked for a tour of the wine cellar and then went up to their room. And then at 2 a.m., this woman calls down and orders a salad. And there's like one guy on duty. So the guy goes up to take the salad. The boyfriend or accomplice or whatever sneaks down, steals the key card, tries to break into the wine cellar. He stole the wrong key card. So she orders a dessert up. The guy goes again. He steals the right key card this time. So they go down. They raid the wine cellar. They get a 19th century vintage worth 350 thousand pounds, and then they left the hotel before dawn and were finally arrested nine months later, crossing from Montenegro into Croatia. I wonder, did they drink any of this wine, or they this? Just is what I, we have, it, you know? have to find out.
2: Because I'm curious what the 350 thousand dollar vintage tastes like. I'm curious about leaving that just like hanging around the wine cellar. Like they what, put it in their backpacks. You, you, you don't have like a like a better like you know, safe system with, like, lasers yeah. and, you know.
1: Why, uh, yeah, why would the room service guy have a key card that would yeah, allow him access to this? That's
2: what I'm saying. Like, it just feels it like a pretty off. casual to, you know, be dealing with that degree. I mean, I like a good wine as much as the next guy, like, you know, friend of the pod, Mike Gottlieb. But I that, that, that price point is a little high for me.
1: That I, price point is really high. And if you're talking about a 19th century vintage, isn't there a decent chance that it is – um just going to be vinegar.
2: What if you get the 350,000 pound bottle of wine that's the 19th century vintage and then you open it and it tastes like
1: vinegar? What do you do? You're just screwed. You're just screwed. You can't really like insure yeah. that, right?
2: No. Just buy some artwork or something.
1: Yeah. Okay, Ben, last thing. So a friend flagged for me this morning. They were watching MSNBC as one does. Watching a little Morning Joe as one does. Uh, he's in DC. They were broadcasting from the International Women's Summit in the UAE sponsored by Forbes, so some sort of like Forbes conference. And I just wanted to pause and just to think for myself, like, where does this rank on the sort of corporate cynicism scale? Because uh, UAE is not Saudi Arabia when it comes to women's rights and the treatment of women. It's, it's, you know, far from it. But women and men do not have equal rights when it comes to getting married. Women need a guardian's permission. Uh, men can unilaterally get divorced. Women cannot. Uh, women only inherit half as much money as their male relatives. There was also this weird, weird case where the the ruler of Dubai, uh, Sheikh Mohammed, his daughter was forcibly abducted and returned to the country, right? I imagine this is not a topic at this summit. It's like, I'm just trying to figure out what, you know, I think I know why this summit was in the UAE, which is they have bags of cash to throw yeah. around to companies yeah, like yeah. Forbes and yeah. other, you know, speakers and things. Yeah. But where, where do we land on the corporate cynicism chart?
2: I, I think it's really high. It, it, like we talk about sports washing and other, like this, this is just a other version of reputation. Conference washing. washing. This is conference washing. And the Emiratis have always been at the forefront of conference washing and kind of just D.C. washing in general. They they sponsor all kinds of stuff. You know, I'll give you an example of when I was like a part of this, right, um, which I felt like a little gross about after the fact, which was, do you remember when the counter ISIS campaign began? Mm-hmm. And it was a big deal that some Arab nations were going to participate in airstrikes against ISIS, right? And so I I was obviously like you know highlighting that. Now the UAE had like a the the I think the one of the first planes had a female fighter pilot, right? And they were very savvy about like putting out that there's a woman fighter pilot bombing ISIS. Great story. She made the rounds on cable TV, you know. I don't think she flew any other missions. I don't think they really? had any other women in the, you know, like so they're very good at like look, they're better than Saudi Arabia but like
1: very the point
2: I would make is If this was genuinely about these issues, why are we not discussing all the things you just said? Like, is this conference addressing the kind of role and rights and, you know, equality of women in the UAE? Or is it just a bunch of gauzy speeches about women and girls being equal, like that could, have, you know, that that are cookie cutter, that ignore the reality that this is happening in a part of the world where that is not at all the lived reality.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of like the the version of this we've talked about is that the UAE is going to host the COP twenty eight climate summit. Yeah, yeah, and that feels also particularly um, odd.
2: No, and for... someone said to me recently, like, you know, well, you know, I was critical of the oil executive who's hosting the mm-hmm. summit for the ue but it's like and isn't it good that the ue wants to do this? well yeah but are they really doing it you know? th- yeah
1: the head of their state oil company serves as their climate envoy.
2: yeah i would like nothing more than but like then okay then let's see the ue announce like some significant changes in like the way in which women are treated in their country instead of just being like tr- trying to show that they can buy any conference and have it in, you know, in Abu Dhabi or Dubai.
1: Yeah, and look, I mean, look, I was reading up on this from Human Rights Watch. It does seem like they've passed some reforms in the last few years. I think, as always, there's a real question about uh, how well they're being implemented. You know, what you can change sort of the laws, but that doesn't mean that the judges are always going to follow them or pass down sort of more lenient sentences or et cetera. So, uh, you know, just keep your your cynicism radar up.
2: Yeah, and what are what are the conditions like for for uh, women, foreign women, domestic workers in the UAE? that Absolutely. might be something a question for people to ask you know what happens to people go to work in the UAE and and their passports get taken away or something yeah. you know like these these things happen um, we should talk about them
1: you no know, well, i hope uh, hope morning joe has a great week
2: in the same way that if the us hosted a conference on women we would talk about things like equal pay abortion and, rights. and abortion rights yep. right i'm not so like we're not in a glass house here right. but i would like to think that if that conference is here that there would be some inward looking conversations my guess is That's probably not going to be the case.
1: Yeah, that'd be my guess, too. Uh, Okay, we are going to take a quick break, and we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Wally Adeyamo, so stick around for that.
0: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made-In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made-In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at maidencookware.com. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace. Yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at
3: your pace. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.
2: By popular demand, the deputy uh, secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary, Wally Adeyema. Wally, uh, thanks so much for being here again. Thanks
4: for having me. It's good to be back. So just to start, we're talking, it's interesting, what what brings you to this this area again? So one of the things that I do, in addition to all the work on Russia-Ukraine, is um, the distribution of American Rescue Plan funds. We gave a historic amount to uh, um, tribal communities in this country, $30 billion, and I was visiting- That's a huge amount of money. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's more than we've ever given in U.S. history to this community that, as you know well, we've Underinvested in, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I came out to visit two of them um, in California and get a chance to see how they're using those resources and to talk about what we can do going forward to help them as they try and build out their communities.
2: That's great. I mean, it's something that probably hasn't got a lot of attention, but should. Um, well, look, we we uh, we want to talk about like harder edged matters here. Um, and just for starters, last time you we were here, we we really broke down different pieces of the the Russia sanctions regime. We're one year into this conflict. Um, we we were talking about this on a recent episode. Some things have worked, some things, you know, uh, have not worked as well. What is your assessment of the sanctions a year in? What, what do you see as the, the bright spots and where do you see more work
4: needing to be done? So I think from our standpoint, one of the bright stop spots has been um, preventing the Kremlin from taking the money they have to buy the weapons they need. The wars went far worse than the Kremlin expected. They've lost 9,000 pieces of military equipment in Ukraine And they're having real trouble rebuilding their military, getting a hold of ammunition, repairing their tanks. Um, And in part, that's due to our sanctions and export controls because they can't get the goods they need from foreign countries. They don't have the money to go out and purchase ammunition from their normal suppliers. And we're continuing to do that because of the lessons we learned from COVID. Everyone here complained about supply chains. And what we did was we said, well, if supply chains is an issue for us, how do we make Russia's supply chain issues even worse? And we're just going after key nodes in their supply chain and making it hard for them to get access to things. So it's making hard for them to build the weapons they need to fight the war in Ukraine. So that's gone well.
2: So just to stop on this, because part of what we want to do here today also is kind of give people, we, I, I probably throw around terms like export controls all the time on this uh, podcast without giving it the context. What is an example of an input to like the Russian economy that is useful for their military that they can't get and and how to explain to people how that works how do you stop them from getting a particular input that they need for their military machine
4: so a good example is just semiconductors which okay. we knew for a long time was key to our cars we can't get cars off the lot as people remember because we didn't have enough semiconductors Well, russia needs Um, very advanced semiconductors for their precision missiles. And they can only buy those semiconductors from certain countries because they're only made by countries like the United States, Taiwan, South Korea. China does not make these advanced semiconductors. So by saying that you can't sell those semiconductors to Russia, it prevents them from being able to build these precision missiles.
2: And these are all countries, because we'll get to some of the, you know, you know people you're trying to lean on uh but these are all people that are all on board with the sanctions. so when you guys put out you know hey you know no no none of these advanced semiconductors russia Those people are cooperating. Yeah, and
4: I think we'll get to this, but the thing we're trying to do now is prevent other countries from buying the semiconductors from us and then in some way shipping them to Ah, Russia through third countries. So that's a big piece of what we're doing now is because what we know is that Russia has tasked their intelligence services with trying to find ways to get around our sanctions because they're hurting their ability to build out the military industrialized complex that they need. I think the second place we've been focused on where I think there's more work to be done is reducing Russia's revenues. Yeah, Um, yeah. Fundamentally, Russia is a commodities exporter. They sell oil to finance their economy. And the perverse thing that happened was because of their war on Ukraine you saw prices for energy go up, which meant that them selling oil was bringing them more money because of the war that they had launched in Ukraine. So a big piece of what we've been doing is finding ways to reduce the amount of money they're earning from selling oil. Um, The price cap's been a big piece of this. We're already starting to see the impact of that on their budget as the state has been forced to borrow from and take money from their reserves to finance the economy because energy revenues have dropped significantly over the last two months since we put in place the price cap.
2: Yeah, and, I, and that, here's another one where we've talked about the price cap, but why don't you explain just like, because people, you know, look at this and they're like, well, how can we set a cap on prices that other nations are using to buy? Like, how, how does that
4: all work? And again, it comes down to supply chains. Yeah. Um, and the truth is that for the transportation of seaborne Oil, most of the companies are involved in this, the people who own the ships, the people who provide the insurance, come from countries like the United States, the UK, and Europe. So, what we're doing is we're not actually capping all of Russian oil. What we're saying is that for Russian oil to use American, European, Japanese supply chains, they can't sell oil for over $60. So, what that's meant is that it's basically put a cap on their ability to use our services to sell their oil, and they're trying to find alternatives. I was going
2: to say, how how much is or is cuz actually I don't know the answer to this like of like how what percent or how much of the global energy market depends on our team essentially yeah. on, on supply chain issues. The
4: best place to think about this is on insurance. 90% okay. of insurance for global oil shipment goes through a G7 provider. So what Russia is trying to do is build up their own insurance industry. They had to transfer billions of dollars from their central bank to set up their own reinsurance company. Yeah. And the reason why we think about this is by spending money on setting up their reinsurance company, that's money they can't spend on buying tanks. Yeah. By spending money on buying tankers, that's money they can't spend on buying missiles. So, fundamentally, they're both getting less money from selling oil within our ecosystem, and they're forced to spend money to build their own ecosystem, which they're going to use to try and sell oil going forward. But the central bank and the finance ministry reported that oil revenues for the month of December were down 46% after we put in place the price gap. And our goal is to try and bring down that revenue even more over time, because that's the best way to starve their economy of the money to prop up the economy, and also to finance the war in Ukraine.
2: OK, so we've got, and, and there's there's like nerd fun places to dig on each of these areas. But so far, we've got the denying them the inputs to their military-industrial complex. We've got trying to deny them the revenue ch- chiefly from uh, energy, which is their principal source of revenue. Then we have oligarchs, right? Um, How's that going? <laughs> like, like uh, it seems like the the, the you know the, obviously the, those guys are now stuck in Russia instead of kind of being able to operate globally. Some of them had a bunch of stuff seized right out of the gate. They lost their yachts, but they lost other assets. But I imagine that some of them are they're trying to move money around. They're trying to wash money in the Emirates, or you know they're putting money in Israel or other places. Like, what? what how would you assess the state of the effort to go after some of these big? And these are people with a lot of resources that could help the state. So it's not just, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. It's actually
4: tied to the war effort. How's that going? Yeah, I think it's both tied to the war effort, but it's also tied directly to the Kremlin and Putin. Because, as you know, Putin doesn't have a bank account. He has these guys. They buy the things he needs and he wants for his personal life and also to support the Kremlin. So going after them is a way of going after his personal wealth. Um, and our sense is that we've been more effective at doing that than we had been previously because it's not just the United States that's putting sanctions on them, but the Europeans and the U.K., the thing about wealthy people is they want their money to be in places where they can move it quite easily. Yeah. And those places are basically the G7 economies because we have the most convertible currencies. So we've had success, but the thing that we've learned about each one of them is they're very good at trying to evade not just our sanctions, but Russian taxes. Yeah. So they have um, found ways to move money around the world. and. To a degree, it is. A, what we've got to do is continue to build out our coalition because if they can't put the money in the UK, they're going to try and move the money to an island, yeah. and we're playing uh, we're playing a very active game here of trying to understand who's facilitating the movement of that money. Because what we've discovered is that if you're facilitating the movement of money for one rich Russian oligarch, you're probably doing it for five. Yeah. So by going after these facilitators, we've been very effective in trapping money in jurisdictions. And then our goal is to try and freeze that money in order to put ourselves in a position to ultimately, um, hopefully, use some of that money to benefit the people of Ukraine.
2: OK, so uh, I think that we've got a good overview of like the, the work lines of effort, as we once used to say in, in endless meetings. Uh, do people still say that? We still that, say that. Okay. And we still have endless
4: meetings. And, <laughs> yeah.
2: um, so going back to the inputs. Uh, one thing that obviously is uh, much in the news today is the the warnings that are being issued to China to not backfill Russia. How much does that connect to China could try to make? Like you mentioned, uh, that they couldn't supply advanced semiconductors. They don't manufacture the the ones that that are as high caliber as Taiwan or the U.S. And but how much is what people are worried about? Not just kind of like ammunition, but it, how much could China potentially try to fill some of the gaps that have been created by our export controls.
4: They could um, try and do a lot. One of the things that we've been encouraged by to date is they've done far less than people expected. I think that's because Chinese firms and individuals are worried about being sanctioned and having export controls put on them. The way we think about this is ultimately Russia's economy is about a $1.5 trillion economy the combined economies of the countries that have put in place this regime is about 50% of the global economy. So the thing we're trying to do for companies and individuals in China, but in the UAE and in countries around Russia is to make very clear to them that You face the risk if you do things that provide material support to Russia of losing access to a far larger market. And we think that's the thing that is so far prevented people from taking these actions that could further build up Russia's military industrialized complex.
2: So even if Chinese foreign policy might be sure, like we backfill a bunch of stuff for their military industrial complex, the the entities that would have to do that know that they might get sanctioned and it's just not worth it to them. Is that fair?
4: Yeah, that's the yeah. choice. They have a choice to make. They can support Russia, which is a small economy that's getting smaller because of our actions, or you can continue to have access to doing business with companies and individuals in countries that represent 50% of the global economy. For most firms and most individuals, it's a clear, logical choice, even if your government's creating a permissive structure for you to do it.
2: And what if, and I don't know if this is ahead of, of like a, a d- decision making, but like if the Chinese government or the PLA starts to provide weapons and ammo, or is there a sanctions response to, to that that is focused on you know the government? And I imagine that's obviously more sensitive than just a, some cutout entity, but like if the PLA is doing that, um, does that open up a new aperture for potential sanctions on China?
4: So I think our view has been, and we've made very clear to all countries in the world that if a country, an individual, or a company provides material support to China, we're gonna hold them accountable. And it's not just the United States, and I think this is what matters to a number of countries. It's also the European Union, um, where a country like China has significant economic relationships. We're all committed within the G7 plus the European Union to taking actions to hold you accountable. I think that's partially why you haven't seen um, a lot of the wholesale, not only in places like China, but in other countries around the world, of provision of material support to Russia, In addition to the fact that as you know, one of the things that China has made very clear is that they um, believe deeply in respecting sovereignty, yeah. um, believe in a bunch of the principles that Russia is actually violating. Yeah. And while I think that the principles they put out around um, a peace settlement um, don't reflect the views of Ukraine because they haven't spoken to Ukraine in a real way, I think that ultimately it's not in China's self-interest to be seen as supporting uh, Russia in a material way.
2: Yeah. No, it's a, a lot for them to think about because it, it, like, as you said, uh, I, I could enumerate some geopolitical reasons they'd want to support Russia. Um, Bogging us down, you know, uh, depleting our stocks, and I go to Taiwan, but it's not without economic risk for them, is what what we're hearing from the Deputy Treasury Secretary. Okay, on the on the energy issues, it you know part of what is uh, uh, we've seen this kind of really truly historic movement from Europe away from Russian oil and gas, but we've also seen China, India, other countries continue to buy, in some cases, increase their purchases of Russian energy. You've talked, uh, I think it's a good visual for people to think about also how. Russia wants to create these kind of end runs around sanctions, probably through countries like that. Um, Secretary Yellen was just at the G20. You could kind of sense some some bad vibes there, <laughs> some pretty tough conversations. Um, wh- what is the state of the effort to try to get Non U.S. and European, and say, and say, Japan, Australia, but you know, non countries that are not already fully on board to just be doing more. N- they may not do as much as we'd like. They may not stop buying Russian oil. But like, what wh- what is the ask that Secretary Yellen and you are making of other countries when it comes to both not, you know, kind of making Russia whole by buying more energy? and not kind of helping them circumvent a sanctions regime.
4: Yeah, I think in addition to the G20 trip, a key thing Secretary Yellen did was she went on a trip to Africa to visit African countries, because I think ultimately the truth is Outside of Ukraine, the countries that are feeling the impact of Russia's war on Ukraine the most are countries in the developing world. You look at Egypt. Egypt Is places, it food? or It's it, food yeah. and it's energy. Because yeah. like, when you think about Egypt, Egypt had to go to the IMF because they used to buy a bunch of their grain from Ukraine. Yeah. And when Russia invaded and cut off the ability for them to get grain the cost went up significantly all of a sudden egypt needs to go to the imf to get assistance and this is a story that you can say throughout africa and throughout latin america they've seen huge increases in food costs and even here in the united states people often think about this war in ukraine being far away from us but when you think about the fact that you were paying more for gas today than you were before the invasion that when you go to the store food costs more than it did before the invasion Mm -hmm. that's because of russia's invasion of ukraine and i think The thing you saw at the G20 this time was Russia and China being isolated when it came to the chair statement. The Indians made very clear that the rest of the 18 countries all agreed on language. It was very tough in terms of saying that Russia's invasion of Ukraine needed to end. And our goal, frankly, is to make very clear to these countries from an economic standpoint that your economic interests are aligned with Russia's invasion of Ukraine ending as soon as possible. That's one of the benefits of the price cap it fundamentally plays to everybody's economic interest. Ultimately, India, China, developing countries, regardless of what they've taken aside, they want to pay less for energy. And they want to pay Russia less for energy. That's why Russia is in such a bind here when it comes to the price cap. It's not just that the West is telling them you can't get more than $60 a barrel. It's now that India, other countries are saying, well, we want to negotiate an even lower price because our economies are struggling because of the war you started in Ukraine. So our goal here is both diplomatically to make this case to these countries, but also to give them options that demonstrate the ability that we're trying to do everything we can to reduce the costs that they're facing due to this war. And they should be asking Russia to do the same.
2: It seems like that, that's had mixed results. So like, like, because you'll hear from there, you know, actually, it's, you, you know, we, we don't want to be a part of this war. Don't ask us to take a side. Or you'll hear, you know, versions of Russian propaganda. You guys push them into it with all your NATO expansion or whatever the line is. Or you'll hear it's actually your sanctions, not the war that's causing these problems. I mean, how how, how hard is it to try to get across the the culpability for this on, on Russia's shoulders in places like Africa? Because I hear a variety of views from people there.
4: Yeah, you are... Totally right, the disinformation is real. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things the president, the vice president have been focused on is that we've just got to be engaged in these countries on a regular basis. That's part of why the secretary went. That's why a number of cabinet officials are going. I'm gonna go in march myself to go have direct conversations with them. And ultimately the thing that each one of these countries have is they have budgets. They Where have, are you
2: gonna go, I'm just curious. Um,
4: I'm gonna do a trip to Ghana, go to Nigeria, and then probably go somewhere in East Africa as okay. well.
2: Yeah. They do have budgets, yeah. I mean, you mentioned you know, Nigeria, will be interesting politically at this yeah. at this moment too. Yeah. The um, okay, so you 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 know, there's a big developing world push diplomatically that that is, is evident and comes back uh, in, into the G20. Then there's like you know, we're pretty hard on the Emirates in this podcast, uh, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons, um, but it does feel like there are, you know, it's one thing when you're talking about kind of Wild West Island states, right? Like, you know, or some guys have cut off cutouts in the Seychelles or whatever, but the Emirates is like a major financial hub of the global economy. And it just kind of feels a bit like Wild West there too. It feels like, you know, everything from like, you know, Russian oligarchs living in fancy hotels to kind of money p- passing through there. What kind of conversations do you have in a, in a? and I'm singling them that I could probably name a whole bunch of other places where there's been probably too too much tolerance for for Russian money washing through. But what, what what's your kind of message if you turn up in an Abu Dhabi or Dubai about like okay because their economy is probably doing well. It's probably helped right by all this money kind of offshoring there. Um, what's your ask and what's your message there and what do you hear back?
4: So my. My ask to um, the Emirates, but also to a number of these other countries, is that you take steps to prevent Russia illicit financial flows from flowing through your country. And part of that is um, making sure that you don't create a permissive envir- environment in general for oligarchs and for other Russian um, money to flow through. For example, we sanctioned um, as part of um, a package a few weeks ago, a Russian financial institution that sent up, set up a branch in the UAE. Yeah. and The idea that that was happening is something that we think doesn't make sense from the standpoint of the Emirates, because fundamentally, the reason they've become such a successful financial hub is that they've taken seriously things like preventing illicit finance. The more they permit Russian individuals and Russian finance to flow through that country, what I'm telling them is you put at risk yeah. um, the good reputation that you've built in the Emirates, and that not only are we going to be willing to take actions like the one we've already taken, but our financial institutions, our businesses that are making the Emirates a hub, are going to be to rethink those decisions. And it's not just the United States. Just a few weeks ago, we did a trip with the UK and the EU passing along the message that you don't only risk the ability for US firms to feel like the Emirates is a home that they want, but firms in Europe and in the UK, as as well, and the thing that we're doing now is we've had a lot of conversations with the governments. We're going directly to businesses and making very clear to them that we're going to take actions against you if you don't um, make sure that you're protecting your system against allowing Russia illicit finance to flow through it.
2: And, and so, just wrapping up on one, one or two things because um, this has been such a good tour of this. Uh, the first one is, and again, making you know we get a sense of you you're like the man playing the whack-a-mole here. Like you put this regime in place, you squeeze the Russians and you kind of go around and try to keep holes from popping up. You know, the Russians are trying to break the sanctions regime or move this money here. But I I think what we don't see uh, are all the people, you know, who are doing this. Like tell people who's doing this work, you know, who who are the young heroes that are out there trying to figure out where the Russian money's going or what... Tanker, they're trying to reflag. I mean, it, this takes human beings, right? Yeah.
4: No, thank you for asking about them, because as you know, the national security apparatus is run by dedicated career staff who do this work day in and day out. People like Andrea Gaki, who,
2: oh, Andrea yeah, who's yeah.
4: been at OFAC for um, since we were at, in the Obama administration, but even before that, um, leading a team at OFAC that's made up of hundreds of talented people who. Are working late nights and early yeah. mornings, and that's true throughout the U.S. government, but also in the U.K. and in the EU. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, people like OFAC, people at BIS, at Commerce, and I think unsung story is about how Commerce has shown up through this in terms of export controls. Um, when we went after Russia in 2014 in Crimea. It was mostly sanctions, and yep. they were limited. We didn't do much with export controls, but I think that over the last few years, we've used those tools and ways to constrain Russia that, frankly, we just haven't in the past. So, career officials throughout Treasury, Commerce Department, and in other departments have played big roles throughout through this.
2: And so, then the last question i ask you, which is, again, more of a challenging question, but um, look, I, I've been... Uh, I'm very supportive of what everything you've talked about with regard to Russia. I've been somewhat critical in the past about the overuse of sanctions as a tool. Um, you mentioned andrea um asked her about the trip we took to Cuba once because it was a great story but um but that was a case of trying to actually you know, unwind some sanctions um uh, my that was my impulse and Andrea's just a career person, so I'm not trying to get her in trouble but like um point being is that some of these other countries are like, okay, you know, you got Iran sanctions, you got Cuba sanctions, you've got Sudan sanctions, you've got some China sanctions, you've had Russia sanctions since before the war, you're you, you you're designating these people here and there, like, and, and you're just overusing this tool. We're tired of it. We're tired of, you know, firms are tired of having risk compliance officers. Whole countries are just tired of like being told they can't let some people travel someplace. Is it harder to do something like, like is there a boy who cried wolf's type thing where here's the Russia sanctions, these this is when sanctions are needed, right? To stop this barbaric war. Is there a problem where the past overuse of sanctions makes it harder to get countries because they have some fatigue with this tool?
4: So I appreciate you saying that because I think oftentimes, um, the people who design these economic tools are making that case that we may overuse this, but people in the foreign policy establishment, because- They love it, yeah. They, they're, yeah, 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 they want to use it yeah. because you don't want to use military force. It's a way of doing something. Yeah, without, it's a way of doing something <laughs> yeah, without yeah, yeah, having to use military force. But I do think you're right, it comes at a cost, both an economic cost to the fact that When you see de-risking in countries and places like Latin America and Africa due to sanctions, that comes at cost in terms of people being able to get access to things that they need. At the beginning of the administration, Secretary Yellen asked me to do a review of sanctions. And some of the things that we found was like the way to make them work better going forward is to do a few things we've done in the Russia context. Be clear about what's our foreign policy objective here. And here in the Russia context, we have two of them. One, stop him from using the money he has to get the weapons he needs. And two, to reduce his revenues. You never hear us say that we want to hurt the people of Russia who are innocently being taken advantage of by this regime. And then the second thing is try to make them multinational. Because when you make them multinational, it to some degree, means that you're making a decision here that is not just the United States, but with our allies and partners. And it both makes them more effective, but also constrains you in a way that is useful in making sure that they're not overused. And the third one is always make sure they're reversible. Like what is the behavior you're actually trying to change? And if that behavior changes, how do you turn these things off? So I do think that one of the things we have to be careful about is the overuse of sanctions. The best way to make sure that doesn't happen is to have a clear criteria about when they're going to be used and when they're not going to be used. And I think the it's going to require the foreign policy establishment to agree that this is something that we have to constrain with a criteria that not only we understand, but we yeah. explain to the rest of the world.
2: Yeah, it's such a good point because uh, just you know the, the countries why you know, like Cuba or Myanmar or Iran, whatever you think you know of, the, of those governments, most often the sanctions had been put in place for some other reason <laughs> and were being kept in place for other reasons. And then there are other countries where it's just sensed like once a US sanction is put in place, like they never go away either. Um, so these are important points and, and a good reminder that it, it's not like you guys at Treasury making this call independently. It's the foreign policy makers of successive administrations. Well, look, thanks so much for this. This is super helpful. We appreciate the work that you and all the folks at Treasury do that doesn't get enough attention. So glad to to, to talk through it here today.
4: Always oh, great to be here. Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks again to Wally for joining the show. Do we have anyone else to thank? Thanks to my mom for coming to visit. Yeah.
2: Thanks to your mom for visiting.
1: Very grateful. Yeah. She's going to be here for a few yeah. days hanging out with the baby. It's actually a pretty cool thing when your mom meets your kid.
2: It's a very cool thing. I, yeah.
1: And that's yeah. like three months now. So yeah. she's like a little more sturdy. She's starting to smile, not just because she's farting. Yeah. It's great.
2: <laughs> the, the farting is, I mean, it makes you very happy when you're three <laughs> months old. You're yeah. thrilled. Yeah.
1: They love that. Yeah. It's about all they do. Uh, okay. That's it for today. See you guys later. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos. Are our sound engineers? Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, PB Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support.